Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. So we have a lot of coronavirus news today. Most of it is positive. Well, maybe I shouldn't say most of it, but some of it is positive, let's say. The vaccine being developed by Pfizer and BioNTech is preventing more than 90% of symptomatic infections in a study of tens of thousands of volunteers. We also know Moderna is getting closer. However, on the other side of things, we know that more than 100,000 U.S., citizens will be diagnosed today and we just have Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York saying New York City is coming dangerously close to a second wave with uh, an all rate now that is above two. Let's bring in Max Neeson who can synthesize all this for us and tell us exactly where we are. He is farm analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and Bloomberg News. Max, talk to us about this vaccine. The market is, is rallying big on it. Is it enough to save us? Uh, not on its own. So this is what I'd call really good news that, that needs a lot of context. So that, that 90% result um, is a really strong indication that this is going to be an effective vaccine. Um, could fade over time as you get more data, be a little bit lower, but it really does suggest that this is something that, that's going to work and, and be useful. The caveat is that it's not going to be immediately available and it's not going to be broadly available for a longer time. Um, I, I think the company's guided to 50 million doses worldwide by the end of the year. Uh, that's enough for only 25 million people. Manufacturing is going to ramp up over time, but you know it, it takes time. And you will still need other vaccines to be successful, likely, in order to um, get a significant part of the population dosed, um, you know, with any sort of, any sort of reasonable time frame. And the other thing to keep in mind is that it's not going to be ready, particularly in sufficient quantities, to do anything about the current sort of rampant outbreaks. That's going to take, um, you know, your more traditional type of, of public health action um, and, and preferably with some urgency, given the, the really disturbing uh, rate of growth that you're seeing lately. So, Max, that rate of growth that we are seeing, you know, as you speak to the experts, is that something that's within the bounds of expectations, given what we know about the virus and colder temperatures and people uh, not being outdoors as much? Um, or is this even a higher rate? I, yeah, I, I wouldn't really blame this on the seasonal effect, although, you know, I, I may be a little biased by uh, the fact I'm in New York and it's beautiful right now. But, um, you know, that we haven't really hit the the sort of worst period for that. The, the, the growth that's coming right now is the fact that there just hasn't been in many parts of the country, um, you know, a robust or sufficient response to, to rapidly growing cases. The, the seasonal effect is something that's going to take what's happening now and, and make it worse. It's not the cause of, of how bad things are right now. We're exponential, aren't we, Max? I mean, we're above two for an O rate in New York City alone, but we're above one in all all, all states. Yeah, it's it's incredibly concerning. Um, I, you know, I, with there's some hope you can point to in the fact that um, the Biden administration, you know, a, a panel of really well-regarded experts, but you do also have to keep in mind that you won't actually take power until late January. Um, so 
we do have the status quo on a national level. You just have to hope that uh, the the states will finally sort of react in, in the way that you should, because, you know, if, if you leave things the way they are, you're just going to see continued growth. Max, what do we know about in this second wave here, the hospitalization rate, number one, and number two, the fatality rate? Is there any reason to believe that those rates won't mirror what we saw in the first wave? Uh, there, there is some reason, yes. So there, there are a bunch of a number of things that are different now. Um, you know, it, it's a different situation. Whereas in the spring, you had sort of completely uncontained spread, a lot of it into really vulnerable populations. Now, even though you know, obviously containment is failing, still efforts to protect those that are more vulnerable, uh, better treatments, better, better know-how about managing the virus. But the the thing that you do have to keep in mind is, you know, a reduction in the hospitalization rate or, or death rate, um, all of that sort of eventually breaks down in the face of large enough numbers. Um, you start to get hospitals that get overwhelmed. You start to get um, enough community transmission that all of those efforts to protect the, the more, more vulnerable population begin to break down. So it's not something that you can take for granted. It's something that is an advantage if you, you manage a relatively good degree of, of containment and caution uh, but one, you know, it's it's a benefit that you can lose. Max, tell us a little bit more about this Pfizer vaccine. So it's preventing 90% of COVID cases in a study. Why 90%? Is that good, you know, relative to other types of vaccines? Shouldn't it be more like 100%? And and how many people are we really talking about here? So 90% is, is actually excellent, um, especially for a vaccine that has been developed so rapidly. So what, what it's preventing in this case is um, the thing that they're measuring is mild symptomatic confirmed cases of COVID. And the number that they're looking at is, is 94 confirmed cases so far, less than 10 people in that group um, that got the, the, the virus, um, that, that got, had a confirmed case in the trial or were, had been vaccinated. That's a rate of efficacy that, that's comparable to, you know, really effective vaccines, much better than, you know, your annual flu vaccine which you know, can hover around the 50% range, and better than the FDA's bar for approval, which was only 50% of efficacy. So there are a lot of unknowns still. You don't know how well the vaccine works at preventing severe disease, um, whether it can actually prevent asymptomatic infection or transmission. But the 90% protection rate suggests that it really is active. It, it does have some degree of protection um, and, and a better one than what many people were actually hoping for. So um, a good and meaningful result, though, though we do still need more, more context and information. Hey, Max, about 30 seconds or so. There's still other uh, entities out there working towards a vaccine. Is the expectation that, you know, as we get into 2021, we'll have two, three, maybe four vaccines in the marketplace at the same time, and it'll simply be a choice or the doctors will figure out which is the best for which population? Um, that's the hope, though I, I do think that only Moderna's vaccine is, is likely to pro- provide data really soon. And there's some concern that having another option or good data may slow trial enrollment. I very much hope that doesn't happen because we really need multiple vaccines given the manufacturing and supply constraints on Max, thank you so much. We appreciate it. As always, a very, very important day here as we move towards a vaccine. Max Neeson, 
Bloomberg Opinion, Biotech and Healthcare Columnist. You can read all of Mac's work and the work of our other opinion columnists at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or by typing O-P-I-N, go on the terminal. Uh, it's interesting, Vani, it's, uh, you know, I guess as Max was suggesting, the hope is you, know, you get multiple vaccines out there in the market because this thing has to scale just on an incredible level. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, obviously we know that it'll be done in layers, but then what about the rest of the world, you know, and then how close do other countries come to getting a vaccine and how does it all get distributed? It's, it's going to be a fascinating matrix to watch. Right now, the KBW Bank Index is up 11.5%. Now, Zion's Bancorp, M&T, Comerica, they're all leading the charge up around 20% apiece. But the majors, like Citigroup, Bank of America, JP Morgan, they're all up 9 and 10%. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about U.S. banks, the Goliath of the global capital markets, as he calls them. Mike Mayo is Senior Analyst at Wells Fargo Securities. Mike, I can understand why banks might be up because the entire market is up, but what else is behind? this extra exuberant trade for the banks? Well, I'd say um, this is not only a good day for banks, a a great day for banks relative to the market, the best performance for bank stock in over six months if this holds. And so, number one, you have the hope for a COVID vaccine. And what we say is that bank stocks have among the highest COVID stock data. So as COVID got worse, bank stocks went down If there's a vaccine, banks should get much better. And the concern there is because of the exposure banks have in lending to corporations and individuals. Uh, The second factor happening today is this enormous move in the Treasury market with a steepening yield curve. So banks like Bank of America certainly benefit uh, from that steepening. Um, And then third, I'd say the idea of a Uh, A Biden presidency with a divided government means that uh, it's the absence of a potential uh, more harsher regulatory regime uh, than what's uh, mostly currently in place. So, Mike, let's talk about that uh, steepening yield curve that you were talking about here. And it goes to the obviously the net interest margin that these banks can earn on their deposits. Give us a sense of kind of where we are today in terms of that part of their business. And does it have... You know, how much more do we need improvement steepening in the yield curve for it to make a meaningful difference for these companies? Well, we estimate that the banking industry will have a peace dividend once the war on COVID is won of about $100 billion. And that does not even assume much change in interest rates. So if interest rates improve, that number would go a lot higher. I think what's interesting is one of the biggest Implicit taxes on the banking industry in history has been this period of lower interest rates. The Federal Reserve balance sheet has ballooned uh, this year from $4 trillion to $7 trillion, and that's kept rates lower for longer. Uh, and the cost to banks has been $50 billion uh, annually, if you compare it year over year. Uh, so to the extent that that reverses some bit, then you could have uh, expectations going higher Across the bank group, this impacts almost every bank, especially some more of the, the smaller banks, but the, the larger Goliath banks, uh, which we've, we've been favoring for a while, like uh, J.P. Morgan and Bank America. Mike, does this assume that once we have a coronavirus vaccine that works and that is getting widely distributed and once cases are going down and flattening and so on, that suddenly everything will be OK for the banks, that you know those, those on the brink of bankruptcy suddenly won't go bankrupt, that those loans will get repaid and so on? 
You know, what I find amazing is just how much recency bias there is to the global financial crisis from over a decade ago. And this idea that banks are on the brink of bankruptcy and they're going to fail or even that they'll have to issue more equity. Now, that might be the case for some smaller banks. No, no, I meant those companies that banks are lending to that are on the verge of bankruptcy. Oh, well, look, these are still sobering times. Make no mistake about it. I mean, so from the banking industry standpoint, the banks have already reserved for the problem loans they expect over the next couple of years. And the peak in these problems probably doesn't happen until the second half of next year. Uh, so you're still going to have bankruptcies, you know, individuals, corporations. These are still hard times. You know, even with the vaccine, uh, I would not expect banks to start saying, well, you know, credit is just fine as far as all these loans. It just helps ease the, the pressure and uh, the risk of a tail risk scenario, you know, in terms of a, um, you know, we have different shape recoveries. Maybe it's not a V-shaped recovery, which is the best case, but maybe it's also not an, an L shape either, or what people say, like a Nike swoosh. Uh, maybe it's more like a, a U that doesn't last as long as otherwise expected. So, bank, uh, Mike, where, how well are the banks reserved right now? I know they're pretty aggressive in the early part of 2020. Are, how are they positioned in your perspective? You know what's amazing? Recent comments from the largest banks say they are reserved. They don't need to build any more reserves than what they did the first part of this year. What they did the first part of this year, and this is due to an accounting change that encouraged this, they said reserve for all the problems you think you'll have from now until infinity for the loans. So they took more reserves at the start of a recession than any time in banking history. So as a result, banks are in better shape to weather the storm, um, the, the losses that are to come um, than any time before. So that means that you know they front-loaded the pain, and now when the losses come, uh, it's doesn't hurt the earnings like it otherwise would. Real quick, Mike, we're out of time, but who will the banks be looking to Joe Biden to pick for some of those important Treasury and, you know, Labor Secretary and so on positions? Well, I think uh, what they can do, what they will do, is they'll look for somebody that has the heart of Main Street and the head of Wall Street. (laughs) And what that means is um, you really have to look after the transparency and Uh, consumers and make sure they're getting a fair deal while at the same time being savvy enough to recognize that, you know, good, good politics is good economics. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Mike Mayo, senior banking analyst at Wells Fargo Securities, giving his thoughts on the banks. They are rallying today. This is Bloomberg Markets with Paul Sweeney and Bonnie Quinn on Bloomberg Radio. Well, with the election, for the most part, in our rearview mirror, it's a great time to check in with Michael Zezas. He's a chief U.S. public policy and municipal strategist for Morgan Stanley. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here. So, all right, we've got the presidential election, and, and with the exception of uh, Georgia, the, uh, the Senate and Congress kind of all mapped out here. What did you take away from this latest election cycle? Yeah, I think you, you sort of framed it right. There's a couple of loose ends here with regard to Senate control, and, and that's where Georgia comes in. But if you take a step back, you know, we went into Election Day having to consider a very wide variety of possible policy outcomes because you had to consider a very wide variety 
of election outcomes, including a much uh, sort of much more substantial uh, Senate control outcome for the Democrats, um, as well as obviously a potential sweep in the other direction for the Republicans. But I think now what you're looking at is basically they're going to get 50 seats in the Senate for the Democrats or they're going to fall short. Uh, and most of the policy concerns that a lot of investors told us in our survey were, were uh, animating their behavior, you know, become you know less variables and more fixed. Uh, things like tech regulation, uh, the potential for taxes to go up. I think there's still some potential for some tax increases in a 50-50 scenario, but probably far less of versus what a lot of investors were expressing concern on. And so, it's not that we don't need to pay attention to this January 5th runoff. We, we there's probably actually a big difference for uh, the, the path for COVID relief stimulus, but a lot of the kind of medium-term policy uh, concerns that investors had, the, the possibilities have been narrowed down substantially. And so politics in general is becoming a little more like a constant than a variable, at least in the very short term. What does it mean for your projection for economic stimulus? So he, here, I think, is the, the, the right way to frame it. Uh, if the Democrats were to take control of the Senate, even with that very slim 50-50 majority. They've had for a long time the motive to spend a lot on COVID relief stimulus, as evidenced by the the HEROES Act being above $3 trillion. Um, If they got 50 seats in the Senate, they'd obviously have the opportunity to execute on that. So I think the way you would frame that is the path to stimulus would be fairly wide and not filled with too much drama, and you would probably get a pretty big package. Um, In a divided government outcome, right, where the Republicans keep the Senate, it's not that you could never get stimulus, but that it would probably be smaller and the path to get there would be less certain. Republicans haven't necessarily sent in the Senate, changed their view about uh, the idea that they're still concerned about spending-driven deficits and uh, are not convinced that the economy needs more stimulus. And so uh, it might be that you need a demonstration from weaker economic data or weaker, mar- weaker market data uh, to move them off of that position. So the difference is a, a Democratic uh, Democrats getting 50 seats gets you a kind of proactive and easy stimulus. The Republicans keeping the Senate probably a bumpy, kind of windy path to uh, ultimately a smaller stimulus. So, Michael, we're starting to see the COVID cases, uh, you know, really go the wrong way here. How does that impact kind of your outlook for what kind of public policy we may see out of a Biden administration in terms of maybe, you know, locking down uh, the country for some period of time and any potential economic fallout? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting here is that, you know, the, the Biden team doesn't take power until January 20th. And and there's a lot that happens between now and January 20th. And obviously the news breaking this morning about vaccines is sort of puts that completely on display. And and so what, you know, what our uh, our biotech team led by Matthew Harrison um, uh, believe is that once you get to January 20th, you will have effectively banked a lot of positive information on vaccination um, that you know, the, sort of the modeling of the virus trajectory would suggest that you could be in kind of more of a plateau territory at that point. So by the time the Biden team kind of comes to um, take executive authority, um, that the, the question of whether or not they would try and pursue a kind of more uh, sort of return to March, April style lockdown could be kind of a moot one because you'd have all this positive new information uh, behind you. And at the same time, if you are getting a pretty negative trajectory 
on COVID and, and you've had some weaker economic data coincident with that, it's far less likely that you would sort of face a difficult scenario of you know, the, the Biden team considering uh, returning to March-April style restrictions at the same time they didn't have a relief package or a stimulus package. It would be very difficult for those two negative things to coexist at the same time. Mm. So, you know, so long story short, I think that it's we should be asking these questions, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of paths to that kind of very negative policy outcome where we end up in both a heavily restricted economy and one without stimulus. Michael, we're almost out of time, but the 10-year yield is at 95 basis points now. We're very close to that 1% mark. Do we get above it and what sends us there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know certainly the view of our interest rates team is that you should still be short on duration here and expect a, a higher bias in yields going forward. Uh, and at this point, because we haven't, uh, or sort of we kept open the pathway to a bigger stimulus package, as we talked about, the Democrats get those 50 seats. It's, it's meaningful that the, the difference between an easy path to a couple of trillion dollars of stimulus and a bumpy path or something smaller, it suggests that you have to price in some degree on a probability weighted basis of a lot more treasury supply. So um, I think the market's sort of behaving very rationally around that. Michael, looking forward to another conversation with you where we can uh, talk a little bit more about the individual states and, and munis and so on. Michael Zizas is Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist at Morgan Stanley, and we thank him. Redhead Ben Carson has now been tested positive for coronavirus. Well, and indeed, we are continuing to watch this market with a 10-year yield at 95-plus basis points. It's quite the change just from last week alone, and obviously we have equities doing their thing as well. But let's concentrate on fixed income now and bring in Thomas McLaughlin, Head of America's Fixed Income at UBS Global Wealth Management. So, Tom, we, you know, we had Treasuries rallying last week, and suddenly now they're, they're, they're dropping like a stone with the 10-year yield at 95 basis points and going higher. How, how much more room is there in this self well you know uh, bonnie this morning uh if and this morning's proven anything it's proven the fact that it's all about covid and the prospects of a vaccine uh we've kind of left the election behind us it's, it's, we've been at it for about 18 months but the election looks like it's been decided and now we're all looking forward uh to the prospects of a vaccine and what you're seeing in the equity market rallied what you're seeing effectively in the yields jumping is the uh the optimism that's uh that's taking over the market this morning so, Tom, let's put a, a coda, if, if, if we will, on the election here. What was UBS out saying to its clients, uh, given that it looks like President-elect uh, Joe Biden will, in fact, be in the White House? Uh, a little bit of uncertainty as it relates to the Senate. What's the UBS message? Yeah, so it's going to be a little more constrained. The ability of uh, the Democrats, regardless of what happens in Georgia, even if they take both seats and they have a narrow majority in the Senate, their uh, ability and discretion to go ahead and make big changes to the uh, the the tax regime is going to be uh, much much more limited. So uh, we think that um, there's going to be a smaller fiscal stimulus, but we do expect one. Uh, we don't think there's going to be a, uh, a massive tax uh, bill or a, tax, a change in the tax regime. Uh, and that's actually also probably uh, helping some of the, uh, the high yield market, for example, which is at uh, tights that are certainly pre-COVID. Yeah, why this reaction, though? I mean, you know, we're looking at 1% of the 10-year again. We're seeing what we're seeing with high yield. All is not well in the world just suddenly just because there's a change in leadership. No, it's not really the change of leadership. That's why I keep coming back to the notion that um, 
as we got closer to the election in October, and certainly will be seen in the wake of the election, is everybody's turned their attention uh, to the prospects of the vaccine. And of course, you know, as uh, there was just a note uh, on the program about the fact that uh, Mayor Palacio came out um, and said he's concerned about the spread of the virus. Governor Herbert in Utah did the same thing last night. So there's a lot of concern about the virus, but the, the prospects of a vaccine, which we've expected to be kind of rolled out in April and May, it looks actually like that's going to happen. So I, I think that enthusiasm, the animal spirits in the market have taken over again, just on the on the prospects that um, we'll be able to relieve ourselves from social distancing sometime next year. Tom, what are you seeing in the corporate credit market uh, in terms of credit quality? Um, is, are you starting to see cracks or is that something that's still going to be a 2021 event? It's still going to be, uh, if we see the cracks, it's going to be a 2021 event. Uh, we've seen, you know, we expect senior loans actually to do well uh, as uh, we've seen incremental increases in yields. Uh, the high yield, you know, again, is that those pre-COVID tights. Uh, and uh, I think that's probably a function of the fact that high yield bonds tend to basically be more or less correlated with the equity market. Um, but the again, the prospects that you'll probably have uh, if there are any changes to the tax regime in 2021, 2022, it will be far more limited than might have been the case if we had a massive blue wave. So, again, incrementally positive uh, for, for that market as well. So what are your wealthy clients calling up and saying? I mean, are they concerned about changes in tax policy? Are they concerned about changes in inheritance policy and so on? And are they trying to do something with their money right now, you know, beyond just swapping out of, of different areas of fixed income? Going into the election, there was a lot of concern uh, about the prospects of taxes. And what we had said then, before the election, was that we didn't think it was going to be rolled out in the, uh, in the first six months, that it would probably be later uh, in the year. Now that we've actually had uh, the election and the Democratic majority in the House is going to be smaller, uh, the Senate, um, we don't know what the outcome is going to be based on Georgia, but uh, they'll certainly be constrained either way. Um, there's, been, there's a little bit less anxiety. Going into the election, though, Bonnie, you're right, there was a lot of concern about uh, estate taxes uh, and whether or not those were going to change. Um, I wouldn't, we're not at a point now we can say they're completely off the table, but we think they're certainly much less, less, less likely. All right. So, Tom, given what we know now from the political front, given what we know now about the pandemic, uh, i.e. the numbers are not trending well, but we do have some, uh, some vaccine uh, information that's certainly positive, where are you finding the best value in a fixed income world for your clients? Well, actually, it's interesting. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of concern about municipal bonds. Uh, and I think one of the things we've told our clients is you have to start with the presumption that in terms of municipal credit, it's a very, very idiosyncratic market. So while you've got some credits that are certainly experiencing stress, New Jersey and Illinois, of course, at least half the states will be able to basically accommodate whatever fiscal stress, that, stress they're going to experience. So here, credit selection is exceptionally important. Um, beyond municipals, again, we think senior loans should actually benefit uh, from, the, from the prospect of incrementally higher um, uh, yields, but also the expectation that credit conditions may actually improve next year. Yeah, it is really fascinating. When you look around the junk space and, you know, the lower quality corporates and so on, what interests you? Because it seems like one day when there's, you know, optimism over a vaccine, it's all the going out stocks, the travel stocks that are rallying. And the next day when, you know, there's a setback, then it's the exact opposite. And we're talking about major moves here and not just, you know, uh, incremental moves. 
Yeah, in industrials and financials probably jump off the page. Uh, industrials, obviously, because if we do get some sort of a, uh, a vaccine next year, and again, we're probably exceptionally optimistic this morning because of the announcement from Pfizer. Um, but uh, industrial activity um, should improve. Uh, the industrials will probably benefit from this as we begin to travel again sometime in the latter part of next year. Financials have been cheap. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you may see some yield curve control by the feds, uh, either in December or sometimes in the, sometime in the first quarter of next year. But by and large, financials, um, you know, have been a sector which are relatively under, undervalued at this point. So to the extent that you get any sort of a steeper yield curve, um, it's probably going to be beneficial. And Tom, on the municipal bond front, you were just chatting about how critical is it for the municipal bond market and, and certainly the states in, in big need for this fiscal stimulus to, in fact, include some type of uh, aid for states and municipalities? Well, this has been one of the, obviously, uh, points of argument between the uh, Republicans and the Democrats run in the run-up to the election. Uh, the GOP has been reluctant to go ahead and allocate a large amount of that stimulus to state and local government aid. Uh, the Democrats have been pushing forward very hard. Um, I, I think in some cases, uh, federal aid uh, to state governments that are in are, are in a world of hurt at this point, some of them um, would be very beneficial. But again, let me emphasize this. There are at least half the states out there that are able to accommodate whatever decline in revenue we've experienced in the last year and probably will experience over the course of the next six to nine months because there's always a lag effect in municipals where the decline in revenue tends not to take effect immediately. It tends to basically build over time. Um, so the current fiscal year into the next fiscal year um, through, let's say, through the end of the calendar year 2021 will probably be the toughest parts. I guess I'm bouncing around the question a little bit only because it's really difficult to go ahead and suggest that there's a, uh, a specific um, need in every single state. It's certainly more necessary in states, again, like with Illinois, Kentucky, New Jersey. It's probably, even though they wouldn't turn down the money, it's probably certainly less necessary in states like Utah, Idaho, Tennessee. Uh, and and therefore, it's really on a case-by-case case, case case basis. So are there anything in terms of projects that you're looking at that will get funded either way? Uh, well, I think uh, enhanced uh, unemployment benefits are certainly on the table. I think there's, there's a fair amount of bipartisan support for that. Um, I, I expect the, the, the amount may have declined in terms of the discussions with the announcement of the virus. Uh, vaccine. I, it's possible. We were talking about $750 billion to a trillion, which was higher than where the Republicans started, certainly far less than the Democrats wanted prior to the election. Um, Speaker Pelosi may have less leverage at this point going into uh, post-election phase of negotiations with McConnell. So this may be somewhere in the range of up to $750 billion. Uh, and, and therefore, they're going to be some, somewhat constrained about how much money they can provide to state and local governments. Um, uh, but I think it's a it's primarily uh, unemployment uh, enhanced benefits is probably where they're going to spend most of their time. And probably, as, I, as I'm thinking about it, probably some additional uh, aid to uh, some of the industrial companies like the airlines that um, will probably right. need some assistance. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thomas McLaughlin, head of America's Fixed Income, UBS Global Wealth Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.